I'm sure all of you know that this is not a, a new practice. It's an ancient practice that was discovered by someone called the Buddha uh, more than 2,500 years ago. The Buddha, the title the Buddha, means the awakened one. And of course, that's exactly the practice that we're doing here today. It's the same practice that he discovered and the same practice that he did himself and a practice that he found anyways led to awakening. For some of you who have been slogging away on a cushion for the last couple of days, it may be difficult to believe that it's a path of awakening. But it is, if you're patient. Tonight I would like to talk about that awakening, about the Buddha's awakening, what he discovered. But before I do, it's important to recognize that whenever the Buddha taught, he really taught from a place where he wasn't trying to convince anybody of anything. In fact, what he encouraged people to do over and over again was to look for themselves, to never accept his teachings, never to accept his teachings as the truth, but really to look at it for themselves. So Buddhism and and his practice has nothing to do with belief systems, relying on beliefs. But really it's about taking a look directly for yourself. And the Buddha spent 45 years talking about his practice, talking about his awakening, and really pointing the way. And pointing the way with that spirit, that spirit of looking for yourself, doing it, trying it, tasting it. So what did the Buddha discover under the Bodhi tree? so long ago? Well, he discovered the entire teachings in one evening. It took him, as it says, in in the teachings anyways, it took him lifetimes of developing certain qualities. And in in the lifetime that he became enlightened, it took him six years of very hard, disciplined work to awaken to this truth. And what he awakened to was what we now call the Four Noble Truths. That's what he talked about talked about that all his life, was the Four Noble Truths. And the first truth is the truth of suffering, the Noble Truth of Suffering. The second truth is the origin or cause of suffering. The third truth is the cessation of suffering, liberation from suffering. And the fourth is the path leading to liberation. When I talk about suffering, what I'm talking about is this very deep sense of discontent, sense of separation, of disconnection, mental anguish, really. In recognizing that first truth, that there's suffering, there's suffering within us, that there's suffering in the world, it may seem like an obvious truth. And probably all of us, in fact, I'm quite sure all of us have recognized that at least to some extent, that there is suffering in the world, there's suffering within us. But to open to suffering, to understand it fully, and to understand the release from suffering, requires much more. Requires much more from us. It requires entering into a radically new relationship with our suffering, and with the suffering of others. We need to learn how to respond to suffering with the intention to learn. With the intention to learn. 
That's our work. Our work is learning to respond to whatever comes up, whatever comes up, whatever comes in our way, is to look at it, to take a look at it with the intention to see, with the intention to learn. This is, a sh- this is quite a shift from our usual relationship. What's our usual relationship? Our usual relationship is to avoid suffering, you know, to judge it, to perhaps deny that we're suffering and deny that there's uh, uh, suffering in the world, sort of to close off to it, to maybe become kind of indifferent and you know, develop an indifference to suffering. Most of the time we're not that indifferent to our own, but we can become very indifferent to other people's suffering. Another response, common response to our own suffering is a sense of resignation, a sense that this is how it is, kind of this is how it's going to be. And that can be quite deep in some of us, that feeling of hopelessness, of resignation. Usually what we do with suffering is we react against it. There's lots of different ways we react against it. We can tighten in our bodies, tighten in our minds, we contract. We spend a lot of time analyzing our suffering, kind of trying to figure it out. Not that there's anything wrong with analysis, but quite often analysis is really coming from a place of reactivity, of trying to get rid of the suffering, of contraction. And so by doing that, it tends to reinforce it. It goes around in a loop. And finally, for many of us, uh, we can get overwhelmed by our suffering. And I think sometimes that happens on retreat. You, know, you come to a retreat with certain expectations, and you sit down, and, and really, this is such a bare-bones practice. It's not that fancy. It's very basic. You're really kind of left with yourself in many, many ways. And suffering can seem very solid. You know, we, can, we, we encounter the struggle, the conflict, the endless inner dialogues, the battles. And, it can become very, and oftentimes it becomes quite... Overwhelming. To awaken to the nature of suffering, suffering really requires a strengthening of the heart and a strengthening of the mind. It requires a practice. It requires a practice to begin to shift our conditioned reaction to suffering. Our conditioned reaction to push suffering away, to try to fix it, and to change that response to one of openness, to trying to meet our suffering with open-heartedness. When we close down around suffering, we strengthen it. We reinforce our fear. The sense of separation and disconnection grows. Rilke said, What is required of us is that we love the difficult and learn to deal with it. In the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. The friendly forces, beginning to recognize the friendly forces, even in the midst of our suffering. Seeing, tasting, beginning to get a sense that understanding the suffering is where freedom is. And so what we're doing in this practice is training the mind and heart to be open. 
to really taste the freedom of what it means to be present. Really learning to be with ourselves, learning to be with the way things are. It's tremendously liberating to begin to be able to be with your experience exactly as it is. Exactly as it is. It's not that suffering is always there, but it's there a lot. And learning to be with that, learning to be with that in a, in a non-reactive way, in a non-judging way, in a non-contracted way, it's the beginning of freedom. It's the beginning of freedom. Because when you can be with what is, you don't have to always be obsessed with how things should be or how things could be. You can really begin to relax and settle. And there's nothing to be afraid of when you can meet your, suffer- when you can meet your suffering with, with love, with compassion. With love, with compassion. Responding to suffering that way. Instead of the effort to avoid Instead of the usual effort to avoid suffering, what we're training ourselves to do is respond to suffering with balanced effort. It takes effort to work with suffering. It takes a lot of effort. And the two of us know this very, very well. It takes a lot of effort to be willing to sit there with the stuff that we're all sitting with. It's not easy. Even if we're feeling calm some of the time and we're we're feeling, we're, we're tasting the fruits, a lot of the times we're engaged, we know we're engaged in a struggle. Think of what effort it takes to be with, say, 10 breaths in a row. It takes a lot of effort for some of us to get the mind that quiet, that it can be steady even just for a minute or two. It takes a lot of effort. And it's that balanced effort, being both gentle and yet persevering. That's what bears fruit in working with suffering. And so it's, it's switching from that effort, that deeply conditioned effort for, from moving away from suffering, that suffering is something bad, something to be afraid of, and instead beginning to work with it, to begin to take it as the material of what we're doing here, the material of our practice. One Zen Roshi, we met with a Zen Roshi a few years ago, and we asked her about suffering. And what she said was that suffering is the gateway to liberation. That was her relationship to suffering, that it's a gateway to liberation. It's the path to freedom, is understanding, walking through that gate, understanding suffering, being able to open to it with a strength of mind and a strength of heart that allows us not to be so overwhelmed by it. We can become fearless when we can begin to look at our suffering in a very direct way without reacting against it. We're also shifting our relationship from reactivity to being more mindful. You know, we're really replacing that conditioned reaction of aversion to suffering to being simply mindful of it. In other words, we're arousing that capacity that's in all of us right now to know our experience without judging it, without pushing it away. That's the power of mindfulness. That's the power of mindfulness. It might sound great to be, say, open, loving. And it may also seem like it's a long way away. But mindfulness isn't. It's in the present moment. You just need to remember to do it. You need to practice. Each moment that you practice mindfulness, you're opening and freeing yourself from suffering. Because of that non-judgmental power 
of mindfulness. That not, you're deconditioning your reactivity to suffering in, in enabling yourself to open to it more fully. And so learning to work with our suffering, learning to open to it, learning not to be so overwhelmed by it, so much a practice, so much a practice is that. And certainly in the first few days of a retreat, usually the suffering can be pretty difficult at the beginning. And then when the mind begins to get trained, when we begin to develop some concentration, concentration is very important in working with suffering. And when the mind is restless and agitated, which the untrained mind is, when it's restless and agitated, it makes working with suffering very, very difficult. There's no calm. You know, we need a certain amount of calm in the face of the difficulties that are within our minds, within our hearts. And concentration is a way. It is tapping into an energy. It's tapping into a quality that you, that you already have. It's nurturing that ability to be one-pointed and attentive, to begin to stabilize the mind so that you can stay with the arising and passing away of diff- different experiences. Now that capacity, the capacity to be in the present moment, the capacity to be with things as they are, relies a lot on concentration, that stability of attention, that stability of the mind. So each time you come back to the breath, you're strengthening your ability, you're strengthening your mind so that you can begin to free yourself. You're finding an inner space within yourself, which begins to balance the concept, begins to balance the suffering. The second noble truth is a little bit more difficult to understand or see. Most of us can agree uh, that there's suffering going on both within us and outside. But beginning to understand what the origin of suffering is, it's not an easy one. Very, very difficult truth. In fact, all of these truths are in many ways very, very difficult to understand. You know, there are many different levels to them, many different ways of seeing them. Many of our insights have to do along the way with seeing, seeing one of these truths. You know, just a little glimmer of it, a little opening. Oh yeah, that's what that means. Ah, there's the second noble truth. There's you know, just seeing it in a very direct way. The second noble truth is, of course, the origin, the root cause of suffering. And what the Buddha discovered is that it was ignorance that was the root cause of suffering. And what he meant by ignorance is not seeing. Not seeing. Not seeing things the way they are. Not seeing the truth not seeing what leads to liberation. All the suffering, so much of our suffering has to do with not seeing you know, what leads to liberation and peace. You know, we might have ideas about it, but we really need to see it moment to moment. We need to taste it. We need to see it directly. We need to see for ourselves. We need to be convinced of it on a very deep level. Because we're very skeptical. Our conditioning doesn't tell us this. Our conditioning doesn't tell us that it's not seeing that leads to our suffering. 
What our conditioning tells us is that we don't have what we want, or we have something that we don't want. You know, and that, that's, that's creating us un, creating unhappiness. And if, we, if somehow we can fix or get rid of the things that we don't want, then we're going to be happy. And if we can get the things that we want, that we like, then we're going to be happy. So much of our conditioning, in this culture particularly, is, is that. How does ignorance express itself in our minds? What does he mean by ignorance? Well, ignorance expresses itself through craving and clinging. Through the mind that's craving, that's clinging. And why is this ignorance? Because when we cling to experience, we're not seeing something that's very, very clear, very obvious, it can be anyways. We're not seeing that that thing that we're clinging to is impermanent. You know, we're not seeing that. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that. We don't see the impermanent nature of it. And so we cling to it. We cling to it. We hold on to it. And in that holding on, we're creating a lot of tension for ourselves. We're setting ourselves up for suffering. Because if we hold on tight to something that's changing, a lot of tension in that holding, we're resisting nature. We're resisting the natural forces. Any experience that we have is going to arise and pass away. We cling and we hold on to it. We suffer. We create fear in ourselves. We cling to the pleasant and we push the unpleasant away. And with all those neutral sensations, we hardly notice them. We ignore them. We don't even see them. What are the kind of experiences that we cling to, that we hold on to? Well, one experience that we've been highlighting in the last couple of days, I'm sure you're getting intimately uh, knowing this experience, which is the we cling to the body. You know, we cling to the body so many different ways. And where does the clinging lead to? You know, this kind of holding on. Well, often it leads to fear. Because the body, of course, is this changing process. It's always changing. It feels different, even from one sitting to the next. You know, when, we, when we become sensitive and mindful, we begin to notice the changing nature of the body. You know, sometimes it's your right shoulder. Next sitting, it's your left. Next sitting is your right knees bothering you, or your lower back. Other times, the body is feeling relaxed and calm. You know, the body is constantly changing. When it's feeling good, when it's feeling pleasant, when it's feeling relaxed, we cling to it. We hold on to it. And then when the tension comes back, we suffer. We cling to concepts of self. You know, we hold on to very, very dearly the kinds of self-images that we have about ourselves, the thoughts, the thoughts and ideas about ourselves. And what's the problem with that? What's the problem with clinging to self-image or clinging to certain ideas, say, say even if they're positive self-images or positive ideas about us. Well, the problem is that it limits possibilities. You know, it limits possibilities. It really cuts into that, that discovery, the possibility of discovery that we all have. 
that beginner's mind, that mind that can look at experience and take life one day at a time, that can open to things in a fresh way. You know, if we, if we walk around with a certain idea of who we are, we limit ourselves. We limit ourselves. Most of us have no idea, no idea of what our potential is. We, we may have ideas, you know, but, but really, you know, we're very limited by who we think we are. We underestimate ourselves all the time. All the time. We underestimate ourselves all the time. We also cling to states of mind. Hold on to states of mind. In meditation practice, the state of mind, of course, that we cling to is calm. And sometimes we're feeling joy, it feels peaceful, and we think we're finally getting there. You know, after all this struggle, all this work, uh, we're finally getting there. It feels calm, it feels peaceful. We finally have some confidence and faith in the practice. And then, you know, a few minutes later, somebody starts rustling next to you and they start kind of interrupting that peace, interrupting that calm. You start thinking about, like, gee, if, I was, you know, if that person was only sitting a little further away, they wouldn't be distracting me, or uh, you know, uh, how come we're sitting so close? And you know, when's this hall going to get quiet? Uh, when are they going to start supporting my practice? Um, and before you know it, that calm has turned into kind of a raging dialogue. Um, you know, a critique about the tradition, the practice, the uh, everybody in the room, uh, whatever. But. You, the point is really that that changing state of mind, whatever it is, is going to change. And then we might, if, we, if, we, if we're fooled into believing you know, that that's what it's about, that moment of calm, if we're fooled into believing that, that that's what practice is about, uh, we try for the remainder of the retreat to get it back. Sometimes we might get it back for a few moments and then it goes away, and then we try to get it back even more. And so oftentimes, you know, that, that whole trying to get back up to a particular state of mind um, leads to a lot of discouragement. You know, it leads to a lot of frustration in practice, a lot of comparing mind. And so learning to let go, simply learning to let go of mind states, beginning to see their changing nature. You know, the fact that they arise under certain conditions and they pass away. No big deal. No need to hold on to it to be happy. It's only going to change anyway. You can enjoy it, no doubt about it. It's pleasant. You can be there fully for it, really tasting it, appreciating that calm. It's important to taste it, but not to attach to it, not to cling to it. Another area of clinging you may have noticed this area of clinging. I think it's very strong in, the, in this culture, culture of individualism, is this clinging to views and opinions. Very powerful in a lot of us. When we begin to look at this clinging to views and opinions, it, it's, sometimes it's quite easy to see it's kind of it's destructive. It's destructive power when we look at the world and we realize that you know entire wars Entire wars, think of the enormity of suffering that people are subjected to in war. Never mind in peace. 
uh, but in war, I mean, just think about it. And, and the justification, the fuel for that is the attachment to views and opinions. It's an attachment to a particular view about a particular culture or group of people that somehow they have become the enemy for one reason or another. That kind of suffering, clinging to views and opinions, you know, we can see. But also trying to uh, get, become a little bit more subtle in our awareness and looking at ourselves, for instance, and beginning to see that attachment. You know, beginning to see the suffering in attaching to particular views and opinions. And what happens when we attach to our views and opinions? Well, one thing that happens, of course, is that oftentimes we experience a po- polarization with other people. We experience that kind of polarity of right and wrong, good and bad, white and black, black and white, opposites. When we cling to views and opinions, it creates separation. I've seen that in relationship. When we attach to views and opinions, when we take views and opinions as something absolute, something solid, leads to separation. It blocks the flow of communication. So often that's the suffering that comes out of these attachments. It blocks the flow of communication and it also prevents the experience of compassion. It gets in the way of our hearts. Quite often this attachment is in the mind. It really blocks that, that warmth of the heart, that connection. Finally, one area that I'm sure all of us are familiar with in terms of our attachments or our clinging, of course, is the area of relationships. Looking at that clinging, it's really painful to look at that clinging. Uh, it's there. You know, if, we look, if we look at our relationships and we look honestly, most of us are attached in one form or another. Um, and attachment, of course, shows itself up in lots of different ways. One way is it's just very habitual. We get very attached, we cling in a very habitual way. Uh, we cling to relationship often out of, a feel, out of fear, you know, sense of loneliness, trying to drive those feelings away, and we cling to relationships. Oftentimes our clinging to relationships comes about by our inability to be with ourselves. And you can see that on retreat so much when, you're, when you kind of are left with yourself. Sometimes it's not so easy to be with yourself. And one of the first things that most people start doing, of course, is fantasizing about what they're going to do when they go home and who they're going to talk to and what they're going to do. And we start entering back into our relationships. And a lot of that is fine. But on the other hand, seeing that it's a movement away from the present, seeing that it's a movement away from our suffering, it's covering over our suffering. It's covering our, uh, over our inability to be with ourselves. And so often our attachment to relationship comes from that place. What we don't recognize in the clinging, as I said earlier, was we don't recognize the impermanent nature of our experiences. But when we begin to recognize the impermanence, when we begin to be able to train the mind to be steady, stable, and open, open-hearted, really looking, we begin to notice that experiences are changing. You sit, and one experience comes after the next, after the next. I guarantee that nobody has had the exact same sitting more than, more than one time. 
Every sitting that I've, I've certainly in 30 years of practice, I've never had one sitting being exactly like the other. It's always, it's always about changing experiences. It's always about the unfolding of the unexpected often, um, the unpredictable. You know, things come and go, aches and pains come and go, thoughts come and go, states of mind come and go. There's this whole process of change. And when we begin to open to that and really see it inside ourselves, we begin to let go. We begin to let go of our clinging to experience. We begin to let go of our hold on experience. We stop grasping so much to these impermanent experiences. We begin to let go of our clinging to experience. We begin to let go of our hold on experience. We stop grasping so much to these impermanent experiences. important to note that this letting go, this letting go that sounds, to me it sounds great, this whole letting go process, um, it happens naturally in practice. You can't force it. You can't force this freedom from clinging or this freedom from attachment. You can't, you can't hurry it along. They're making computers, you know, faster and faster. You know, every year, Last year's computer is too slow. And things are moving, technology is moving so quick. But, you know, letting go of suffering doesn't move that quick. It's not like that. I wish it was. Uh, But it's slower than that. It requires a little bit more effort. It requires more patience. It It doesn't happen according to our own agenda, according to our own schedule. We need to learn to be patient. But what's important about letting go is that each moment that you're practicing mindfulness, each moment of mindfulness is letting go, is liberation. It's sowing the seeds for awakening, for liberation. Because mindfulness deconditions. It deconditions our reactions to experience. When we can meet something with mindfulness, rather than reactivity, we begin to taste freedom. We see that there's some other way of being with these unpleasant experiences. There's some other way of being with ourself rather than running away from ourselves. We increase our capacity to be open and loving because those are the qualities of mindfulness. It's not some ideal outside of ourselves. It's not some ideal about that we need to become mindful. We don't really become mindful. We nurture mindfulness. We allow mindfulness to grow because it's within us. You know, it's an innate capacity that everybody in this room has, that shares. And when we strengthen it, when we begin to respond to each moment of our experience, whether it's the breathing, whether it's the body, whether it's any other experience, when we meet it with mindfulness, we're transforming our experience. We're transforming ourselves. We're transforming our conditioning. We're really beginning to wake up. We're beginning to be able to take a look at things and see things as they are. Because mindfulness is non-judging. It's non-conceptual. It allows us to look at experience and see it unfiltered by our reactions, 
unfiltered by our concepts and ideas. And we have so many concepts and ideas about our suffering. It's very difficult to open to it directly. And it's very difficult to understand the nature, the cause, the origin of suffering. We need that strength, that ability to be open and mindful. So each moment you come back, you're moving towards liberation, whether it feels it or not. And what we're doing, and, and really the opportunity in retreat, is that we're trying to develop that mindfulness in a more continuous way. Because the more continuous you can be, the easier it, it, it becomes to remember to be mindful. It becomes more accessible. We're training ourselves to be mindful. At the beginning of a retreat, it's a lot of hard work to remember to be mindful. It's a lot of hard work to be, to be present. To simply be present with what you're doing is very difficult. But when the mind starts settling down a little bit, when the mind gets more focused, we're able to open up to things. You know, we're able to be with experience. As it unfolds, we start making a connection to it. And so this mindfulness is really the key in both understanding and opening to suffering, but also in understanding the origin, allowing ourselves to, to look at that. When we talk about letting go in Buddhism, yeah. Dharma, it can be pretty confusing. I think the whole idea of letting go... Um, Letting go of the attachment to the body. It doesn't mean that you don't take care of your body. That's somehow, I think there was a misunderstanding in the transmission of the Dharma some time ago. And we, we kind of adopted it. And, and the idea that, that the opposite of attachment is detachment, to detach, to kind of disentangle. And that's a misunderstanding. The opposite of attachment is non-attachment. It's letting go. It's openness of mind. It's openness of heart. It's a non-clinging. So letting go of our attachment to the body means really recognizing the fact that the body is this changing experience. You know, this changing experience that oftentimes we don't have any control over. You know, in beginning to live with that truth. In beginning to live with that truth. We're not separate from nature. We're part of nature. And our bodies are part of nature. And, they, and the body goes with the law of nature. I mean, it follows the law of nature. It's not something separate. It's not who we are. It's not fixed. We might cling to it, but it really is changing. And our clinging isn't going to change that. It isn't going to change the fact that, it's, that it is changing. When we can settle into the fact that the body is this changing process that gets sick and will eventually die. You know, if we can begin to open to that truth, we begin to let go of the suffering in that truth. And we begin to let go of the suffering because now we're not clinging so much to the body. Letting go of states of mind. Letting go of states of mind really means not identifying so much with these changing states of mind. You know, we tend to identify with all these things that come up in our mind, you know, that this is who I am. This is how I feel. This is, you know, this is what I'm about. Uh, this is, you know, this is who I am. You know, the state of mind. And where is that state of mind 15 seconds later or 30 seconds later or a minute later? It's gone. It's changed. When we begin to see the changing nature of all these states of mind, 
when we begin to see that they rise and pass away, just like physical sensations, just like the breathing is followed by an in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, mental states are the same way. We don't need to take them as who we are. And when we begin to see the changing nature, we don't identify with those states of mind. We don't suffer so much because we don't cling to them. We don't identify. We don't take them for who we are. We don't need to hold on to a particular state of mind. Instead, we can be aware of it, be present for it, know that we're experiencing it, but not cling to it, not hold on to it. When that state of mind changes, lo and behold, another state of mind arises. Instead of clinging, what we can do is learn from these different states of mind. When we can begin to look at them, we we can understand their true nature. We can develop insight, wisdom, freedom, rather than the grasping, rather than holding on. You know, we're, in some ways, you know, it, it's like we're poor, we think we're poor, and, and that somehow if we have the state of mind that we're so willing to work for, that, that, that that's what's going to do it. And, and then if we do get that state of mind, it changes, and it's very discouraging. But the fact is we're looking in the wrong place. We don't need, this, this practice isn't about achieving a particular state of mind. I don't know if that's new information uh, to a few of you, and if, if a lot of people leave tomorrow morning, um, I'll know that I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, but it, it isn't about a particular state of mind. It's not about leaving here with a particular state of mind. It's not about having some hot, you know, great experience on the cushion. Uh, it's, it's really a learning of, uh, what real freedom is. Real freedom is learning to go with experience, to open up to experience, to allow it to come and go, and to learn from it. To learn from it in a very balanced, open way. Tremendous freedom in that. When you can be with experiences as they come and go without reacting, it's tremendously freeing. So much more joyful you know, than a particular experience that you could have. You know, because that experience you know, may not help you in a day or two days or three days. You know, but the freedom that you get from uh, the strength of mind that you're developing through being with these changing experiences, through the insight of seeing the impermanence, that's something that's more lasting. That's something you can take with you, that freedom, that understanding. Letting go of our attachment to views and opinions. Well, it doesn't mean that you can't have, fortunately for us up here anyways, it's fortunate that you don't, it doesn't mean you can't have strong opinions and uh, feel things strongly and have strong views. You can. Feeling passionately, feeling strongly about something is not the same thing as being attached to it. It doesn't mean to be free of your attachment to views. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with everybody. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, that it would create some idea that now, you know, views and opinions are impermanent and changing, which is all true. But, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, in, in the Dharma scene, I think very often you, you, people think, well, they're not supposed to have views and opinions. They're supposed to kind of smile and be compassionate and kind of agree with everybody. Um, that's not the case. Uh, it isn't about that at all. It's not about being wimpish. It's not about modifying your views to, to, to get along with other people. But rather, it's, it's really seeing the fact that a view and opinion is a view and opinion, quite simply. Seeing views and opinions as views and opinions. It's not the absolute truth. You know, we don't hold the absolute truth. These are views and opinions. They're things that we think about. You know, a lot of times our views and opinions are shaped by our background, by our conditioning. So it's very, very important to be open to that. 
You know, if we don't cling to views and opinions, there's a tremendous amount of freedom. We can have our views and opinions, but we don't cling to it. And when we don't cling, we don't create separation. Other people can have their views and opinions too. The other thing about our views and opinions is they, they do change a lot. Think about all the views and opinions I had even a few years ago. You know, so many of them change. I remember when I first started practicing, um, my early 20s, one view that I held for really a number of years was that um, you weren't a good meditator if you moved uh, at all, for any reason, uh, while you were sitting on the cushion. So no matter how painful or uncomfortable it would get, you know, my view that I really attached to was if you move, you're, you know, you're moving, you know, there was some judgment. Of course, that judgment changed a little bit as time went on, but, but, but I held that for a long time, and it was tremendously freeing, you know, when, when I began to see that, hey, that was just a view and opinion. I could maybe let that one go and actually move a little bit if I was in agony, you know, and, and you know, and that was freedom. That, that was freedom. That was almost enlightenment for me. Was, um, when I discovered that I could move and that I didn't, you know, go straight to Dharma hell or whatever, whatever, uh, whatever I had in my crazy little mind back then. Um, so views and opinions, they can be quite insidious. They creep into our practices. You know, they were, so keep an eye on them. You know, keep an eye on that. And, and when we cling to them, we often don't see them as views and opinions. But so often they are. So often they are. And even if it's the right view, if you're clinging to it, uh, it brings suffering. And finally, clinging to relationship. Wow. I'm just getting through the second noble truth and uh, my time's up. Um, so, uh, the Buddha spent 45 years talking about it. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's a pretty deep, it's a big teaching. Um, anyway, clinging to relationship. I'll finish, take a couple of, mi- couple of minutes here. Clinging to relationship, of course. Um, letting go of that clinging doesn't mean, and th- this is very, very, very important to begin to understand this. Uh, it's such an area of delusion uh, with meditators. Meditators get into these crazy ideals about uh, what it means to be now in relationship when you're practicing the Dharma. And it really creates havoc uh, sometimes in relationship. Um, not clinging to relationship doesn't mean that you begin to detach from the people that you're involved with. You know, no matter what the level of intimacy is, whether it's partners, friends, family, uh, acquaintances, it doesn't mean that you begin to detach or you begin to pull away or that you begin to disengage from people or that you become indifferent, you know, that you become kind of non-reactive or indifferent to, to their suffering. Okay, that's not what it means by letting go of our clinging. Or that you can't make a commitment you know, to relationships, whatever that form of relationship is, that you can't make a commitment because, well, if relationships are changing uh, you know, and I'm not supposed to cling, then that means you know, I can't have commitments. But that, of course, is delusion. Instead, not clinging to relationship really means taking a look at the nature of relationship itself, whatever the relationship is, you know, whether it's close or casual, taking a look at the relationship and beginning to see that in relationship, the, rela- the nature of relationship, whether we like it or not, is to change. 
In fact, the nature of who we are and the nature of that other person is that we're all this changing process, this changing, alive process. Very important to recognize that truth because when you do, the relationship stays alive. Instead of relationship becoming habit, you know, where we begin to take things for granted, where we cling to certain ideas about who that person is or who we are, instead of getting caught up in that, um, we begin to open up to other possibilities. We begin to see that people, you know, people have deep, uh, deep strengths within them. You know, people have so much untapped potential. And, and so often we overlook that when we're clinging to relationship. We cling to relationship out of fear. And so letting go really doesn't mean that you let go, push away. But it's more a question of just beginning to see that relationship is part of nature too. It's part of life. And, and the more mindful we can be, you know, the more mindful we can be, the more present we can be in relationship. You know, the more joy there is in relationship, the more connection there is in relationship. And that's really where freedom is, when we're open, when we're present, when we're alive. And so it's important on this journey that we're all taking here. It's important to recognize that you know, the things that come up, the difficulties, you know, the, the good stuff, the joys, the difficulties, it's all part of practice. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong when you encounter restlessness or sleepiness or doubt, or fantasies. You know, not even to judge the clinging or the attachment. Really, the practice is, you know, just to look at it, to begin to see it, to look into its true nature, to be present for it, to be open to it. You know, in that openness, there's a tremendous amount of freedom. Because then whatever comes up, you know, it's not threatening anymore. The Buddha said, you know, make your life, make your practice like an island that no flood can overwhelm. That no flood can overwhelm your life. And with training of the mind, training of the heart, that's what happens. No longer overwhelmed by the difficulties and challenges that we meet. Because we have the confidence and the strength to meet them. But it takes patience and it takes training. So please, please continue. It's worth it. Thank you.